0: Last week we heard about how Jethro, an unlikely convert, heard about God's great acts on behalf of Israel, had those events explained to him by Moses, and confessed Yahweh as his God. Jethro's hearing and believing showcased for us a significant truth in the Old Testament, which is this, that the blessing of forever Never stopping, heart skipping, love and life together with God and his people is for all people and all nations. Jethro, after all, is not Jewish. We learned about how God's promise and rescue of the people of Israel out of slavery and into freedom anticipates his greater rescue of all who will trust in him out of slavery to sin and into the freedom of his presence. We learned that God's promise is for all who have faith in Jesus Christ, the unlikely and unexpected Savior of all. As unimaginable as it sounds, God the Son, the creator king of the cosmos, took off his crown in order to take on flesh so that he might live a perfect life, fully dependent on God the Holy Spirit and fully pleasing to God the Father in our place he came not only to live a perfect life in our place but to die in our place Jesus Christ gave himself to be crushed under the right wrath of a holy God for our sin for your sin in Christ the impossible has happened death was conquered by his death and a death blow was dealt to suffering and evil It is in Jesus' resurrection that he proves his person and his power, his ability to give life the truth that he is the Lord of life. And now he is proving his love and his patience as he delays his return so that all who belong to him might be saved. We learned that all those who wear the name Christian are undeserving and unlikely converts who are following the unlikely rescuer, Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, we return to the story of Jethro's unlikely conversion in Exodus chapter 18 this morning. And today we're going to consider how the authenticity of his faith is evidenced in verses 12 through twenty-seven, If you remember last week, this was originally supposed to be one big sermon. We were going to see Jethro's faith and then the evidence of his faith with the fruit of his faith in the second part, but I wasn't feeling well, and so we just did part one. And so this morning, we're going to concern ourselves with the second half of that outline, which is Jethro's participation. And as we stressed last week, the theological point of this chapter is that Yahweh is greater than all gods. Yahweh is supreme. It's this truth that changes Jethro and propels him into service. And so once more, our main idea this morning is that God rescues and uses unlikely converts. Last week we saw the rescue, and this week we're going to see God's use of Jethro. Let's pray together, and then we'll begin by reading verse 12. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have saved each and every one of us who have professed faith in you this morning. That you have breathed life into the lungs of dead men and women who loved their sin and their rebellion more than you. Who loved to listen to their hearts instead of your voice. Father, we thank you that you have called us to yourself. That you stepped into our lives rescued us we also thank you that you have bound us together in your church as your people so that we might become in practice what you've declared us in christ which is holy father help us as we submit to the teaching of your word together to continue to grow up into Christ's likeness help us to continue to encourage and exhort one another towards good deeds and love Father, use this fellowship to bring honor and glory to yourself. We pray that you would make uh, your name famous among us and in our community. Speak to us now. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at verse 12, Uh, just a little bit of background first. We just covered it a little bit, but Jethro hears about what God has done for Israel in the Exodus. He comes, Moses explains to him what God has done, and Jethro believes, he confesses that Yahweh is greater than all other gods. And then this is the follow-up to that confession that we see in verse 12. It says, then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in God's presence. The truth of Jethro's conversion is being made evident. And the first fruit of his participation is seen in his offering of a burnt offering. Right? A burnt offering is understood to atone for past sin and to appeal for forgiveness and acceptance. And so Jethro's bringing a burnt offering and sacrifices to God is his making a public appeal for forgiveness and acceptance. His heart has been reoriented. No longer is he trusting in the false gods of which he was a priest. He's been changed by the one true God, and so he is going public with this change by bringing sacrifices, by making a burnt offering. And and it's not a one-to-one here. But this is similar to what Christians do when they come to faith, right? When someone has their heart changed by Jesus, they demonstrate the reality of their confession by going public with their faith in baptism. right? It, it is in baptism that we validate the truth of our confession, announce our loyalty to Jesus, and are joined to his church. We are baptized out of the world into the church and onto mission, and it's through his sacrifices that Jethro is validating the truth of his confession, announcing his loyalty to Yahweh, and as we see in the second part of the verse, being joined together with Israel. So it says, Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in in God's presence. Jethro eats a meal with Israel's elders in the presence of of God. This meal signifies his formal admission into the people of Israel. Jethro is in fellowship with God and his people. Again, this is not a one-to-one, but something similar is signified in our practice of communion. When we eat the Lord's Supper together, we are renewing our commitment to Christ and to one another. Sharing the bread and the cup in the presence of God signifies our unity with one another and with Christ. And so too, Jethro's acceptance by the people of God is being underlined by the sharing of a meal. This shouldn't strike us as out of the ordinary. It makes sense. You eat with people that you're in relationship with. In fact, I think that this meal should remind us of how we, the many, are made one by Christ. At any rate, to, to summarize what's going on in verse 12, Jethro's faith, the, the truth of his conversion, is being evidenced in his appealing to God for forgiveness and acceptance by bringing a burnt offering and his eating a meal with God's people. Which led me to ask as I was thinking about this, how, how then is our faith evidenced? Right? How can we know that our faith is, is genuine? And I think in a really similar way, right? We appeal to God on the basis of Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice for forgiveness and acceptance. For the Christian, this is pictured in baptism. And by participating in the fellowship with God's people, which is pictured most simply in the Lord's Supper. I think that uh, when we've been talking a lot about church membership recently, but I, I think these two things, baptism and the Lord's Supper, actually create this reality to which they point, which is church membership. Right? Church membership names the theological relationship between a Christian and a church, which is created by the ordinances. So when we are baptized, we're not baptized out of the world and into some ethereal, transcendent, solitary place. No, we're taken out of the world, out of the kingdom of darkness, and placed into the kingdom of light. We're placed into fellowship with one another. And that ongoing fellowship is evidenced by our continual eating together, the Lord's Supper. Right? That's why when uh, someone is put out of church membership, they used to call it excommunicate or excommunion. Because that was the simplest way to picture that this person is no longer participating with the fellowship of believers. They're not eating with us anymore. So we can see that by Jethro's eating, he's being accepted into Israel as part of the people. I love the way Bobby Jameson says it in his book, uh, On Baptism and the Lord's Supper. He says, Together, baptism and the Lord's Supper mark off a church as unified, visible, and a local body of believers. When you become a follower of Jesus you pledge your loyalty to Jesus and his people in baptism, and you renew that vow by participating in the Lord's Supper. In other words, baptism is the front door to the church, and the Lord's Supper is the family meal. This is one of the ways that the church blesses us. By it assures us of the genuineness of our faith. As we continue to renew our covenant, as we continue to eat and drink unto Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, probably tired of hearing me say it by now, (laughs) but uh, the local church is the authority that Jesus has established on earth to officially affirm and give shape to my Christian life and yours. It's a part of what we're doing here as we do life together, eat together, gather together on Sundays is we're affirming one another's salvation. If you remember when we were in 1 John, uh, verse 7 of chapter 1, as one of my favorites. It says, if we walk in the light as he, that's God, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, Right? And so one of the ways we inverted that when we were working through that message was that uh, if we don't walk in the light as he is in the light, then we will not have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, will not cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Part of the evidence of our faith, one of the fruits of the genuineness of our confession, is our participation in loving one another. And the way that the Christian puts flesh on the bones of his conversion is by being in a community called the local church. That's where we love one another. All those love one another commandments in the New Testament cannot be fulfilled in solitude. They cannot be fulfilled outside of covenant with God and his people. It's a big reason why our membership must be meaningful. We don't want to affirm the salvation of someone who has refused to obey Jesus by living in unrepentant sin. We don't want to give anybody the idea that we don't know about their life, that that they are following Jesus when they are refusing to participate in those things to which he's called them. I mean, it is a hateful and cowardly thing when churches lie by telling those who are not bearing the fruit of repentance, by telling those who are not Living the Christian life that they're rooted in Christ. What a terrible lie. But how wonderful a thing it is that Jesus has given us the church so that we can know that we are in Him, that we abide in Him by abiding in His Word together. It's wonderful comfort that we can have full confidence and go before the Lord's throne together. What a great privilege it is to be part of the body of Christ. And so we see that Jethro's conversion has been proven by his participation in the worship of Yahweh. He appeals for forgiveness and acceptance, and this is shown that he is both forgiven and accepted by his eating of a meal with Israel before Yahweh. And now what we'll see is his, uh, his conversion is further confirmed as he is used by Yahweh to gently correct Moses. Let's look at verse 13. I have to read a lot, so I'm going to drink a little bit here. The next day, Moses sat down to judge the people. And they stood around Moses from morning until evening. So to, to, picture, to help you picture this a little bit, uh, you can just think about a trip to the DMV, right? Like everybody's waiting around forever, lines not moving. When Moses' father-in-law saw everything that he was doing for them, he asked, What is this thing you're doing for the people? Why are you alone sitting as judge while all the people stand around you from morning until evening? Moses replied to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. Whenever they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I make a decision between one man and another. I teach them God's statutes and laws. What you're doing is not good, Moses' father-in-law said to him. Matter of fact, you will certainly wear out both yourself and these people who are with you, because the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me. I will give you some advice, and God be with you, You be the one to represent the people before God and bring their cases to him. Instruct them about the statutes and laws and teach them the way to live and what they must do. But you should select from all the people, able men, God-fearing, trustworthy, and hating bribes. Place them over the people as commanders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They should judge the people at all times. Then they can bring you every important case, but judge every minor case themselves. In this way, you will lighten your load, and they will bear it with you. If you do this, and God so directs you, you will be able to endure. And also, these people will be able to go home at peace or satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. So Moses chose able men from all of Israel and made them leaders over the people as commanders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. That's the, the second time we've seen that phrase. It's not literally thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. It's a, 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 um, an expression for each and every population group, how they're grouping them out so that every person is responsible to a particular judge. All right, verse 26. They judged the people at all times. They would bring the hard cases to Moses, but they would judge every minor case themselves. Then Moses said goodbye to his father-in-law, and he journeyed to his own land. So in sum, Moses tells his father-in-law all that's going on, what he is doing. And Jethro says, that's not good. It's not good for you. It's not good for your people. It's not good for anybody. And eventually, everyone is going to wear out if you continue this overwork, Moses. Moses. Notice that Jethro doesn't tell Moses to stop doing important tasks, such as uh, taking the people to God in prayer and God to the people in his teaching, but to fulfill his ministry. And the way that he recommends Moses fulfill his ministry is by sharing the ministry. In this case, Moses heeds Jethro's counsel and sets up an organizational structure to help with adjudicating the disputes of the people. Now, elsewhere in Scripture, uh, we're told that Moses is the most humble man on the face of the earth, right? That's in Numbers. It's always kind of funny because Moses wrote Numbers, and so he's writing it about himself. It doesn't seem very humble. But here, we, we see him as, as very humble, right? We have evidence for his humility. It's not easy to accept correction, but Moses takes it in stride. We should learn a lesson from Moses about how to receive the gift of correction, Proverbs 12, 1 is right. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but the one who hates correction is stupid. I love this application. Anytime I can say this, easy application point. Don't be stupid, right? Don't be stupid. When your brothers and sisters practice ordinary, everyday church discipline by offering to you the gift of correction, receive it and rejoice. They're helping you become more like Jesus. Again, we're not, we're not talking about the sin police here so that we're categor- uh, like annoyingly cataloging every stubbed toe and every curse word, right? We're not, it's not what we're talking about. We're talking about loving and compassionate correction that comes in relationship to significant and habitual sin. You know the difference, right? You know the difference. We want to give correction like Jethro and receive correction like Moses. I mean, look, look at how humbly he responds in verse 24. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. I mean, it's a miracle in and of itself. He's listening to his in-laws. He doesn't bristle defensively at Jethro. didn't brush him off as an outsider who didn't understand the organization. He doesn't try to save face by lying and say, well, I've been thinking of that all along, actually. He doesn't pull spiritual ranks on Jethro and say, hey, you know what, I actually hear from God directly all the time so I've got this. No, no, he gratefully received and immediately implements Jethro's counsel. He appoints qualified men. These are guys who are trustworthy. They don't take bribes to oversee the easier cases, and then they send the more difficult ones up to him. You can really uh, think of it as an ancient court system, uh, and Moses is basically the Supreme Court, right? They're handling all these issues at the lower levels, and the really tough cases are going up to Moses. Now, according to Jethro's advice, Moses will lighten his load by allowing others to bear the burden with him, right? Don't miss the result of this either in verse 23. It says, if you do this, and God so directs you, you will be able to endure, and also these people will be able to go home satisfied. God will direct you, you will be able to endure, and the people go in peace. In other words, this works out best for everyone when you share the ministry. The text helps us illuminate this this really important concept of shared ministry. Of course, our situation is different, but but we can apply this principle both to the ministry of the church and to pastor or elder care, right? As it relates to pastor or elder care, the New Testament shows us that it's healthiest when a church has a plurality or multiple pastor elders to a church, we've talked about this in Titus, but let me outline the practical benefits for you once more as I quote Dr. Morita for a, a second time. First, it protects pastors from mistakes they might make as a lone wolf pastor. Secondly, it helps make up for a pastor's deficiencies. Third, it makes pastoral ministry more enjoyable. Fourth, it guards against a pastor sacrificing his family in favor of ministerial demands. Fifth, it provides accountability and encouragement. Sixth, it allows a division of the shepherding responsibilities and prevents burnout, including but not limited to praying for congregational needs. Seventh, this is a really important one, it ensures doctrinal integrity. Eighth, it reinforces the idea that Jesus is the head of the church, not a single pastor. Nine, it guards against the celebrity pastor movement that permeates the Christian subculture. The church is not built around one rock star senior pastor, but a plurality of servant leaders. Lastly, a plurality of elders is the best way to prepare for the departure of an elder or pastor. It allows for smooth and reliable transitions between paid pastors and eliminates the need to have an interim preacher since all elders are required to be capable of teaching and preaching. It's because the plurality of elders is both biblical and practical that we're moving in this direction as a church and, and moving towards establishing others as uh, pastor elders aside from myself, and I am just really excited about it, and I hope you are too. As important as, as pastor elders are, we don't want to make the mistake of thinking that, that pastor elders do everything. Yes, they are to be given to the word of God in prayer, and yes, they are to equip God's people to do the work of ministry, as Paul says in Ephesians 4. But notice who is doing the work of ministry in Ephesians 4. It's the church. All of the church is to do ministry. Every church member is to serve. Healthy churches practice shared ministry by having in every member ministry. Every Christian has a part to play in the body of Christ. Consider Romans 12, verses 4 through 6. Now as we have many parts in one body and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. According to the grace given us, we have different gifts. And so the question we need to ask and answer, what part am I playing? How am I using my gifts for the building up of the church? How are are you sharing the burden of, of your church's ministry. One of the ways we can easily do this is just by um, using our natural giftings and experiences. That's what we see Jethro do here, right? He comes to Moses, and it's just natural for him to help. I mean, he's compassionate, and he cares for his son-in-law, and so he talks to him about the situation, right? He doesn't just jump in and offer Moses advice based on what he sees, but, but he asks for Moses' perspective, this is wise and it's kind because it gives Moses the opportunity to, to clarify what he's doing and why. I think we can learn from this, right? We minister well to one another when we listen to one another. Compassionate conversation is key to relationship building and Christ-like correction. Secondly, we see that Jethro is courageous enough to gently correct Moses' unhealthy behavior, right? People that care about one another are courageous enough to gently correct one another when they are aware of unhealthy or sinful habits in one another's lives. Just as it would be unloving to see a friend who has their foot caught in a bear trap and shrug and walk away without doing anything, right? Hear no evil, see no evil. So too is it unloving to see a friend caught in a sinful or unhealthy pattern and walk away without doing anything. I always use this example, if I've got something stuck in my teeth, please tell me right? You've seen the thing where everybody kind of feels awkward, somebody's got like a big hunk of lettuce stuck between their two front teeth, and nobody will tell them. That's unloving, man. Let them know. I probably have some in my teeth right now, and y'all are just like feeling guilty about it. No, tell them. Gentle, loving correction is a normal part of the Christian life. It's one of the many ways that we help one another grow up in likeness. Galatians 6, 1 through 3 is for us. It's for you. This is what Paul writes. Brothers, if someone is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. I mean, I hope that we are willing to do the difficult and often uncomfortable work of correcting wrongdoing, to do that hard work of carrying one another's burdens. Sadly, however, in regards to correction, I think one of the most misused verses, misunderstood verses in the Bible is one that uh, everyone knows, especially non-Christians. It's one that they all uh, know, even if they've never even been in a church, right? It's Matthew 7, 1. Judge not, lest thou be judged. Everybody knows that one. Can't judge me. But because we're good readers, we know that context is king. That's how we determine the meaning of a sentence. It gets it from the paragraph that surrounds. And so we we read this verse in context to understand it rightly. Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 1. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For with the judgment you use, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and look, there's a log in your own? Hypocrite. Look at this, this is key. First take the log out of your eye and then, look at what he's calling you to do, you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus is not saying don't, correct one another. He's saying stop judging others in a hypocritical fashion. Get the sin out of your own life so that you can see rightly to help your brother get the sin out of theirs. Take the log out of your eye, help your brother get the speck out of their eye. In other words, understand you are a sinner and be gracious and gentle when you restore the wayward brother or sister, knowing that you're probably going to need correction yourself not too far down the road must be willing to hold one another accountable to Christ-like living, so that Jesus' name is not sullied by an unchrist-like church. Like Jethro, we need to be courageous enough to correct. Thirdly, we see that Jethro uses his experience and wisdom to counsel Moses about how to better fulfill his ministry. Jethro doesn't just say, "This isn't good," and then leave it at that. He offers some counsel he offers a solution. I think likewise, our experiences and our wisdom are resources to be stewarded for the benefit of others. I mean, you have experience that no one else has. That's why it's so important to be here. It might be a brother or sister that's struggling with something that only you know how to speak to. They need comforted in a way that, with a comfort that only you can offer them because you've been through it. God has worked uniquely in your life. And you may be the only person that's equipped to speak meaningfully into someone else's. Friends, don't withhold yourself from others. We all, like Jethro, have natural gifts that are a great benefit to the church. Also notice here, God doesn't speak to Moses directly about the issue, but uses Jethro, right? Moses, who speaks to God directly, I mean, he does it throughout Exodus, right? who talks with God at the burning bush and is described as speaking to God face-to-face as a man does with his friend, doesn't get this correction from God, but from Jethro, right? Moses isn't up on a a mountain by himself in his personal uh, prayer life. He's not having a, a really great quiet time, and God tells him what to do. No, God uses Jethro to correct Moses. Why? Because we need each other. Because God rescues and uses unlikely converts. Because God has made us for community with himself and with one another. He's made us to need him and his people. Church, we, we need each other. You need us and we need you. This, after all, is why we have been given the various gifts. 1 right? Corinthians 14.26 says that we have these spiritual gifts in order to build one another up. Not just to sit back and enjoy our guests ourselves, but to minister to one another. I think a good way to figure out how to start building others up and ministering is to ask questions like this. Who can I care for? How can I care for them? What am I I passionate about? What am I skilled at? So maybe you're passionate about knitting, right? It's Really cool thing right now. And so you start a knitting club to build closer relationships with other people in the church and form new relationships with people in the community. Maybe you hear somebody is out of town or sick, and you you go and cut their grass or do their laundry. Maybe you learn there's a family in the community that doesn't have a place to live, and so you bring them into your home. That's what hospitality is, after all. It's loving the stranger. Perhaps you're skilled in music, and so you get involved with the music team. Maybe you are a great host or hostess, and so instead of having people over to your house once a month, you have people over every other week or every week. Build community. Maybe you have a garden that yields tons of vegetables, and so you give them away to as many people as possible, especially those in need of food. Perhaps you discover someone is lonely, and so you make it your ambition to visit them and call them regularly. No one in our church should ever feel alone. We are called to love one another. We need to make it our aim to find somebody that might be struggling with being alone, especially on a Sunday, and make sure that they are not. I mean, how easy would it be for us to include someone else on our uh, after-church lunch plans? Come to lunch with us. Come and hang out at our house. We need to concern ourselves with community. The point that I'm making is that, that ministry is broad and is the responsibility of each one of us if you are a member at rockfish valley baptist church this ministry the ministry of the church is your responsibility right i'm going to do some of it but you need to do most of it i think for the most part uh, uh the overall ministry of the church needs to look a lot like vbs did this last week i mean i did next to nothing and it was awesome i was so proud of you all Y'all did such a great job. I could have, like, literally, I did so little, I could have not been here, and nobody would have known the difference because of how well you were ministering to one another and to those in the community that came and had their kids entertained and taught about Jesus. It was awesome. It's wise to think about how you are ministering in, in, new way, in the new ways that you might serve one another. Additionally, we do need to be thankful for those that are serving. Thankful for those that serve as greeters and ushers, encouragers, singers, piano players, hosts, food makers, prayers, visitors, teachers. It's good practice to give thanks to God for the various people and gifts that He has blessed us with. And He has given us much. It's okay to tell those that are serving you, thank you. I'm sure that Moses was thankful for Jethro's plan. It saved him from wearing out himself and the people. It enabled him to endure and to send the people home satisfied. Sharing the ministry is, is good in our case and in Moses' case. But the greatest ministry that ever took place was one that could not be shared. Jesus Christ, when he went to the cross, could not share the burden of our sin or our guilt with any other. He had to bear it himself. And it did more than just wear him out. It killed him. And he did this so that we might share in his life, in his resurrection life so that we might share in fellowship with one another, so that we might share his ministry, make his glory known to all people and all nations. All this happened here in Exodus 18 because God rescued and used an unlikely convert. I mean, God's rescue of Jethro is amazing. I mean, the dude was a priest of another religion, right? But he hears about God's great acts on behalf of Israel, comes to Moses, has Israel's journey from slavery to freedom explained to him, and he believes. I mean, how, how, how do you explain a conversion like this? It is nothing more than the work of God. You I mean, remember we said that the main idea of Exodus, and perhaps the whole Bible, is that God works sovereignly to save a special people for his own glory. It is God who draw, draws Jethro to himself and it is God who gives the gift of faith. I love Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For you are saved by grace through faith and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Not from works so that no one can boast. Perhaps Jethro's salvation in light of this verse wasn't all that unlikely after all. Perhaps it was inevitable. Inevitable because the sovereign God of the universe had resolved to save him. Non-Christian, perhaps your conversion is not unlikely, but inevitable. Would you pray that God would draw you to himself and seize control of your heart and give you the gift of faith? All you must do to receive his gift is to hear and believe the gospel. The question is, will you? Will you, like Jethro, hear of God's great act and believe? Because his greatest act, the greatest act in all of history, it was on your behalf. All of us have rebelled against God's kingship and deserve to die a traitor's death. But instead of justly hanging us, Jesus Christ, the just one, hung for us crucified on a Roman cross, buried in a borrowed tomb. And he rose to be seated on his eternal throne so that we might share in his fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, so that we might have peace with God and with one another. This is our greatest need, our deepest need. He guarantees us in Christ all the blessings of eternity. He guarantees us, to put it in a Disney way, To live happily ever after if we trust Him. This is what Christ has purchased for us on the cross true and abundant, happy life with God. I wonder if you're here and you don't believe, will you, like Jethro, hear the good news, believe, and join the family of God? Christian, will you, like Moses, delight in what God has done? And resolve to tell others about how the Lord has delivered you out of slavery to sin and into sonship. Adopted you into his family. As you are considering this morning following Jesus for the first time. Or as you continue to follow Jesus by delighting in the truth of the gospel. I want you to be encouraged this morning by that beautiful truth. That God rescues and uses Unlikely disciples. That he rescues and uses sinners like you and sinners like me for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we are a weak and broken people. We come here each week acknowledging that we need you. I mean, we, we are a mess. We thank you that we're your mess, and that daily you are making us more and more beautiful as we depend on you to meet our daily needs because you have made our, met our greatest need, which is salvation from your just and holy wrath. We thank you that you've saved us from death through your own death. We thank you that there will be an end to suffering and evil, that you are waiting patiently to return until all those who will become your sons and daughters are saved. But Father, together we look forward longingly for that day, when lion and lamb will lie down together. When we will all be gathered around your throne and declaring your excellencies. Father, you are glorious. and We give praise and thanks to you now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.